Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. Once again, I am joined by my glamorous uh, co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Um, Well, it's been a bit of a mixed week, actually. So yesterday, it was a really sad day um, because I went to a funeral of a lady that I used to support I was a social worker um don't make a habit of of going to people's funerals that when I've been their social worker but this lady had no family um other than and her her friends were her people the staff around her that had paid support so myself and a colleague went with um a few people from the care home which was which was lovely it was a lovely funeral a lovely service and um we gave her a nice send off, but there wasn't a dry eye in the crematorium. So it was um, a bit of an emotional day. But but other than that, um, things have been OK. It's been snowing in the southwest of England, which is very unusual. We don't normally get snow. Um, after we thought we, we were going to get snowed in the office today when it started coming down quite thick. Um, obviously in Britain we are not prepared for snow at all (laughs) everything (laughs) like there's panic everyone's rushing to the windows thinking that they're going to get stuck um not like our friends in any other country um that can cope with snow so that's been that's been the roundup of of my time what about you just really get getting back in the swing of things to be perfectly honest um You'll recall from our uh, advice column, uh, listeners, that's Monday's column on the uh, on so- marysocialworknews.com. You may recall from reading that, Tilly, that um, I've been on a go slow, I've got to be honest. This week is the first week where I felt fully back up to speed. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, first week obviously was kind of a half week given, you know, um, start of the week we were off. Then last week, I just felt like I was getting up to speed with things. And yeah, this is the first week where I actually feel properly back in the swing of things um, and up to speed. But nothing exciting to report, my friend. Same old with me. Same old, uh, just same old routine. <laughs> I wish I had something exciting. It's hard, hasn't it? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I wish, well, I am 40 this year. Do you know what I mean? That's So yeah, I am. I'm not far. You know what? Average life expectancy for men is what eighty. So yeah, I'm nigh on. I'm oh, nigh on. We need you, you know. to have a, a midlife crisis. We need you to <laughs> get a, a second win to your youth. What? What? Like have an affair, get a fancy new car? You well, know, maybe so, not an affair, a fancy new car or a motorbike or something. A motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> we will see. I might. Be, I might. I might take up something more traditional, like maybe golf. That might be. Should, oh, we, should no. we go down that route? Should I take up golf? Um, no. Every time I hear the word golf, I just think of Donald Trump. I don't know why. Just him and his golf buggy that seemed to leave America yeah. in chaos and then he went yeah. off and played golf. So there Maybe we go, listeners. Um, from next week onwards, this is going to be a podcast where we explore my golf handicap week by week. Nice. That's exactly what our listeners want, I'm sure. Ah. <laughs> um. Moving swiftly on and on to social work climbs. This week, we are going to look at the things your social work manager wants you to know. Now, it's a good job we don't actually have my social work manager on the show because we may be here for a 14-part series. But 
We don't have my manager, but we do have a manager. So before we break down um, your advice, Tilly, because this is based on a, an article that you wrote for mysocialworknews.com last week, before we get into the article and break it down bit by bit for our listeners, what was your what was your thought process behind this article? Why, why did you feel there was a need to bridge that gap between manager and social worker? Well... I want to say something really philosophical, um, but I'm addicted to TikTok and every now and then you get videos that come across as um, the corporate lifestyle and trying to survive with a manager versus worker. Um, I don't know if that's just my For You page and that just shows you my algorithm that I am living and thinking about work even when I'm not at work. Um, But that was... Honestly, that was the inspiration for it. People hating on their managers. And I just thought, you know what? The social work relationship with your manager, the supervisee, supervisor, manager um, relationship is is such an important one. Um, Because if you don't get that right, then it can make your time and your job really miserable and dangerous as well. Um, Because ultimately your manager is the person that's going to be supporting you to make sometimes life and death decisions Mm -hmm. so if you don't feel like you're being supported in the right way then that's really dangerous place to be so I think I just wanted to talk to the social work world about um, what from a manager's point of view what I really want the people that I supervise to know because it can feel sometimes like it's an us and them between managers and people working on the front line and it really shouldn't be because as managers, we've all been there. We've all been practicing social workers. Um, it's really important that there isn't that divide. And it's about, I suppose, having good two-way communication. So that was the the motivation behind the article. I think it's very much needed. Managers are an easy target. Um, it's easy to mourn about managers. And I think... Managers are, are often voiceless within social work because you get lots of frontline social workers like myself and Matt B and other people that have, you know, write for our website and come on the podcast. And you get lots of senior figures and lots of lecturers. So you kind of get a disjointed balance of who speaks about social work. You've got a handful of brave or foolish, delete as appropriate, frontline social workers who are, who are loud and put the voice out there and express the views. You have your corporate leaders who very much tore the party line and, and have to because that's their job, you know, no criticism. And then you've got academics. And academics, I think, are, are, have got the most freedom out of anybody to talk because they can say anything they want about social work because they're not employed within practice. Unless they say anything very extreme or offensive, they're not going to lose their job. So I think sometimes academics and researchers can perhaps do a lot of damage to social work, actually, because they can criticise it without really having a foot in the door to do anything about it. So you don't really get managers, though. Managers and service managers, that sort of middle layer of management and independent reviewing offices, their voices are rarely heard. So I think it's very important when people like yourself, Tilly, write these pieces. Uh, we had another one on the website um, 
this week, actually, on, on Tuesday from um, one of our columnists, Millie. And hers, you know, her article was, I might complain about my manager, but I'm a much better social worker because of her. I think a lot of social workers, if they're honest, would, would, would say a similar thing that, look, I might complain about my manager, but, you know, thank God they're there. Yeah, and social work is such a scary place to be sometimes. As as I said, you're making such important decisions in people's lives. And without having that support network around you, it's 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 dangerous. You can easily fall into trap of of, um, of being overly cautious or, or, or very risk averse, or equally you can be sort of a bit more gung-ho and, and, and not pick up on those early warning signs. So it's really important that you have someone that you can reflect on your practice with and someone that you trust in that position. Yes, definitely. So let's go on to that then. Um, let's go on to what your manager wants you to know. So the first one, Tilly, you said that you want your employees to ask questions. Why do managers want their social workers to ask questions? Oh, I mean, if you have someone that just sits there and doesn't ask anything, then I always really worry about that person because you don't, there's so many things in social work that you're expected to know, but no one tells you. And if you're not asking questions, you're not being curious, you're not thinking about the different, how you're applying the law, the policy, the theories, the, the, the research to your practice, and you're not digging into that, then I think it can be easy to fall into that trap of practicing very superficially, um, not asking those right questions when you're supporting families or individuals. And the more you're asking, the more curious you are, then the better social worker you're going to be. And no one's expected to know anything. I mean, I learn stuff, I learn new stuff every day. Um, I don't think a day goes by when I don't learn something new on the job. Um, that's what keeps things fresh so if you're not being prepared to ask questions or perhaps you're more shy or reserved um, then that's just that's not a good place to be I want you to ask be curious be critical and that's going to make you a better social worker how do you balance that between letting your newly qualified workers flee the nest because I I was very mindful when I was first starting out 10 years ago that I I didn't want to keep going to my manager with basic things and I wanted to get to a point where I was able to define uh, between what I was allowed to make judgment calls on and what I should go to my manager on. And I would like, I like to think that I got to a point where I'd ask her something once if I was in a very similar situation, I could apply the same knowledge. So how do you get that line between same to your workers? Right? I want you to come to me if you've got questions. I want you to ask me questions, but not have dependency and not have a fear that they have to run everything by you. How do you manage that process? I think when you get to know each other, you feel you fall into a rhythm and I know certainly the people that I supervise, once they've got a sense of who I am and, and how I practice, they very quickly pick up on things that they know what I'm going to say because that's what I instill in them. Mm. Um, so then they don't need to come to me. But until they ask in the first place, then 
they're not going to learn. And sometimes I, when they ask me something, I reflect it straight back to them and say, well, what do you think? What, or yeah. what do you think I'm going to say? That's one of my favourite sayings, actually. What, what, what advice do you think I'm going to give you? And they know what advice I'm going to say most of the time um, because that's what you get for, for having those strong social work values and, and ethics that I always put the person first. They know that, that human rights is going to come up very highly um and i want people to do the right thing not the easy thing so um they they can kind of judge that the more the more they get to know me um and and over time you you just feel more comfortable at knowing what each other's going to say good point and well handled and that's an, another reason why stable teams and having those good relationships is so important the next thing you put in your article tell you about uh, what what you want your social workers to know is, I want you to tell me what you need. So what do your social workers come to you asking for? And what in general would you say to people who perhaps in this situation say, I'm a bit worried about approaching my manager because if I tell them what I need, it could potentially be seen as a weakness. Yeah, and that's always really worries me when people feel that, they're going to be judged or or it's going to be viewed as a weakness because that's not what it's about. To have a successful relationship with your manager and, and, and supervisee, you need to, to know what sort of person you are, how you practice, and be able to communicate that. So for me, and I, and I always try and, and start this off when I'm, I'm supervising someone new, I'll say to people, I like to talk out loud when I'm thinking through a problem. So I might, I'll ask questions, I might come up with a different um, ideas and just sort of voice them and talk through them before I say a definite answer. Um, don't send me reams and reams of stuff to read. I'd rather you talk to me about it. I, I'm, I'm not so good at reading through loads of, of information. Um, and I like to, I'm, I'm a kinesthetic type learner, so I learn by doing. So if that's something that, that I can show, that, that that's how I approach my supervisees and say that this is how I learn, how do you learn? So how, how do you what do you need to get from supervision are you more of a reflective practitioner are you more of a doing practitioner do you like to um talk a, a lot about theories and research and and that sort of hypothesizing when you're looking at reflective practice or do you prefer a more practical approach where you come to me with your list and we go through your tasks and and everyone practices so differently so I need people to tell me what works for them and what doesn't work we all come from different backgrounds we've all been had different experience of supervision and different people like different things so unless you tell me I'm not going to know Tell you what, if I came to you and I said I want to be left alone? Um, we would negotiate that. Ah. Um, <laughs> some people some people practice more autonomously. Especially yes, that's what I want, Tilly. I would come to you and I'd say, you're all right, boss. Um, yeah, I mean, if you were a, a newly qualified social worker and you came to me and said that, I think we'd be having a very different conversation. Uh. But if you've practiced uh, like you for example for many years and you 
get on with things best and you like to manage your own time, I have no problem with that. Um, Let's role play this, Tilly, okay? You know, <laughs> oh, no, I hate role play. Please every, don't. Everybody loves role play. <laughs> so, um, a speed knocker on the door, okay? A speed knock. It's You say you've got an open door policy, but imagine for this, the door's locked just so we've got some. I don't think I've there. ever had an office, my own office as a manager. You have, you, you have. You know, this is the, this is the power oh. of the imagination, okay? Right, so... Uh, I'll play Vince, the social worker. You play Tilly, the manager. You ready? Yep, go on then. Come in. Uh, boss, for some reason, your door is shut. You always go on about having an open door policy, but whatever. Um, I read an article you did the other day for um, Social Work News. I love that outfit, by the way. It's excellent. Um, I... In the article, you said that I need to come and tell you what I need. Am I okay to tell you what I need right now? Of course you can, Vince. Excellent, right. I need to be left the hell alone. Um, I want to come into work, do the minimal amount of effort possible. I will perform the basic statutory duties. I'll never go above and beyond. I'll never work more than my allotted hours. I'll never take any sick days. I'll do everything expected of me. But I want you to leave me alone. I don't want to speak to anybody in the office. Um, I want to come in, do my job, and I don't. I want supervision to literally be a quick case update, and that's it. Um, I don't want anybody to talk to me. I don't even want my colleagues to look at me, if possible. I certainly don't want anyone to have my personal number. I know anything all about my personal life. Um, I will come out on one function a year and have an apple tizer and then go home within two hours. Are you able to do that for me? No. <laughs> We need a bit more from you than that, Vince. I mean, not talking to anyone in the office is, is not going to be okay. I mean, you don't have to work above and beyond your additional hours. I, I never expect that from anyone. You can keep your personal life separate, but there would be an expectation to, to support other colleagues. And you're an experienced worker, so I might need you to, to support some of the students and newly qualified and less experienced staff. So... Um, I think we might have a bit of negotiating to do. But I will leave you alone on your caseload and just in case updates. That's fine. I trust you with that. Okay, there's my two-week notice. It's been nice knowing you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move I don't on. Know what, well, <laughs> does, does your current manager do that, though? Let do you what? get away with that? I... I was playing a fictitious version of myself, oh, as, if, course, of as, if, as, as if I would ever be like that in the work. I've played a fictitious version of myself. Um, that wasn't that wasn't the real me. It was like Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's like a character based on me. I like how David Brent is kind of Ricky Gervais, but it's like the worst of him. I was, I was just playing a character, definitely. Okay. All right, um, so uh, no social work England referrals, please. For Vince. What would I be That's referred for? What would I be referred for? <laughs> wanting, to, wanting to be left being alone? Being obtuse. What, you know, oh, yeah. is, that, is that within the social work England uh, guidelines? Is it thou shalt not be obtuse? <laughs> Maybe that should be. <laughs> Maybe it should be. Well, there's me out of a job and a profession. Um, the third thing you put in your article is I want you to challenge me. Obviously, I've just challenged you there, but um, how and when should social workers challenge their manager? So it's always got to be done with sensitivity. And I wouldn't expect people to 
to come across it like a battleground. But I always encourage people from the start that if you don't agree with a decision I've made, let's have a debate about it. Let's, this is a safe space. And there's so many different options in social work. There's very re- rarely a right and wrong way of doing things. If it's lawful, if it's ethical, then I'm all ears. So if I've told you to, I don't know, take that escalate that case to a court case and you don't think it should be then let's have a discussion about it what makes you think that and I'll tell you why I think that and we negotiate a way forward together right um role play round two. Oh no not another role play our listeners don't want to listen to this this is making me cringe uh yeah boss you said you want me to challenge you um I'm going to challenge you about the way you trapped me earlier. You said that um, I, you said that I had to speak to my colleagues. I don't want to. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> my decision that, is fine. And that's how you deal. And listeners, that's how you deal with an obtuse social worker. We're getting some advice here in the Tilly Baden School of Management. Um, the fourth point you said, and, and I like this one because I, I, when I was a manager, I was a manager for about six months. Uh, when I stepped up in a management position as a temporary measure until they um, found a permanent manager because uh, I was an agency worker at the time and I went to a permanent position. Um, I won't ask you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. So before I ask you on this one, Tilly, I'm going to set out where I I don't think I got the balance right on this one because I think I was doing a bit too much on this one. Like I was going out on visits I uh, occasionally like worked on a weekend to help with like a tricky case and so on. And none of the other managers had done that. And I'd never really seen any other managers do that. So how do you get that balance between not doing anything that you work, not doing anything, not, not asking your workers to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself, but trying to get that clear demarcation between manager and being out there doing the work on behalf of your workers, because that's what I struggled with, because I knew I was only stepping up for a six-month period and then going back to frontline work. I worried that I would lose sort of touch. How is it possible to do both, to still be like a lead from the front, but not overcommit, as I think I was potentially guilty of? Yeah, I think it's really important that managers keep their hand in frontline practice. Um, so for me, for example, I, I still do um, an, an assessment at least sort of once a fortnight where I go out and meet with someone and, and do a, a best interest assessment. And I suppose I'm fortunate in the team that I'm, I'm in now where we get to do those if, if there is a complex case that that's within the the local authority and they need a a capacity assessment done then it's my team's job to go out and support with that so I'm always a first volunteer I'm like yeah I'll come with you Uh, let's um let's go out and meet that person together um I mean when I was managing a a locality team um I think there's a, a thing to be said about delegating these tasks and being able to link your less experienced staff with your more experienced staff so that sometimes it's you that might go out and support them on visits and and I think it's really important that managers do that every now and then but equally you try and buddy people up together within the team so that 
you still get your chance to do your management jobs. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork to be doing as a manager. And if you're going out on visits all the time, then actually that's not the best use of your time. And it can mean then that you're not available for your other team members, because if you're going out on a visit, it might take you out of the diary, you you block out in your diary for, say, half a day, um, especially with travel time. So actually, that's a really big impact on your team who wouldn't be able to contact you during that time. So there's got to be a balance. Keep your hand in sometimes, but equally know the strengths of your team and delegate um, and, and share responsibilities with your, your more experienced social workers. Yes. And I think, um, do you know what? Looking back and, and being sort of reflective, I mean, this was what? two years ago now, two and a half years ago. I think I was kind of, I was too keen to be cool. I was like, I'm not like the other managers. I'm a cool manager. I'll still go out on visits. I'm still one of you guys. I think I was trying a bit too hard and, and I didn't I didn't have that balance right. But yeah, what you said there, particularly that last bit about, you know, if you're out on one person's visit, you're not there for the other six. That's a pertinent point to do. That'll serve me well if I'm ever called upon to step into a manager's role again. Um, these next two kind of go hand in hand in your article. Um, the first one is whatever happens, please be truthful. And the second one is some things are confidential and I can't share them. So we'll talk about these at the same time because, you know, it's kind of truth and confidentiality go hand in hand. The first one, um, when people make mistakes, they can be scared to be honest. They can be scared to be open. And if people are scared that their manager will treat genuine mistakes or or inexperience or naivety with anger and criticism, they're less likely to be open. How do you build a culture of honesty where social workers feel free to share if they're uncertain, to share if they're worried, to share if they've made a mistake and know that they will be supported and not criticised when, let's be honest, particularly in child protection, social work, there is a cloying blame culture. How do you fight against that blame culture as a manager? So one of the things that I do when I initially start supervising someone is talk to people about some of the mistakes that I've made and have this really upfront conversation with people and say, look, Every single one of us makes mistakes. Some of the mistakes are worse than others. You know what? I'm going to share with you some of my awful mistakes that make my insides cringe. And And Tilly, is that that when you tell them when you first became involved with me? Oh, of course. I mean, that's that's a massive Is that the first story you share? (laughs) Let me tell you about a man from the North. Who just, uh, yeah... He likes roleplay. <laughs> no, no. Um, I'm not going to share what those mistakes are because um, I'm not going to open myself up to that on such a public forum. Um, but certainly the people that I'm supervise, that I supervise will know some of my big mistakes that I've made within social work. And I say to people, look, that's, it's, it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's when. So when it does, I promise you, I won't be angry. We'll just do damage control. Just be honest up front. And I don't mind it as long as people do things for the right reason. 
we can't be right all the time. Sometimes we're going to be wrong. But if your intentions were pure and you're doing the best that you can, then no one can criticize you for that. And I'll stand by any of my team. And um, I make that very clear right from the outset. And going hand in hand with that one, um, you said in your article, some things are confidential, I can't share them. Now, we spoke about red flags. Uh, about five, six weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about you know toxic workplace cultures and managers. And one of the things we discussed was uh, managers who share confidential information. How do you reassure your staff that what they tell you, unless it's a safeguarding risk, will be kept confidential? Well, as cringy as it sounds, we have a supervision agreement when we start and I, I, we address these, these issues straight from the outset. And I say, the, this is what will be kept confidential. This is what I can't keep confidential. Um, some of the things that we talk about, I'll be sharing with my manager who may share with their manager and, and so on up the chain. Um, some things, and if you talk to me about some of your things in your personal life, would never go any further. Um, and I think having setting those boundaries right from the start just avoids any awkwardness or embarrassment or misunderstandings that, that go later on. Because once things have been said, they can't be unsaid. And it it can be a really hard balance, as I said in the article, to make decisions sometimes which look like you might be favouring certain people in the team or you might be giving some some people an easier ride than others. But I just say to people, if they do ever question those decisions, look, if, if you had something going on, would you want me to be sharing that with the rest of the team? No. So don't ask me because I'm not going to lie to you, but I might not, I can't tell you either. Um, and that's, I, I, I'm trying treating you each with respect. So if, if I'm saying something to about one person, I'm not going to be saying it about, about the other person. So I think that's, that's what you've got to do as a manager, just be open and, and honest about what your limits are straight from the start. Definitely. It's almost like contracting. So I did my counselling qualification and obviously you look at the basics of it and I, I do this a lot when I'm doing independent parenting assessments with parents. You know, we'll set contracts and expectations up at the start. Look, this is what you'll get from me. This is what I expect from you. Anything you want to add, you can. Anything I want to add, and I think, as you're saying there, if you can set that con, if you can set that contract up from the start, you know, it really does help build congruence, and you can you can forward and look from a management perspective it's great because you get more committed workers and from a worker's perspective it's great because you've got a manager you can trust it's literally a win-win to do anything else is, is folly and I hope if anybody isn't doing that and they've heard this they can start to embed that in their practice now um, the next one and this is a key one isn't it I I always think that as managers you're only as good as what your social workers tell you you cannot possibly micromanage hundreds and hundreds of cases if a social worker is not being honest with you or not being honest with their recording unless you get a complaint and you happen to speak to a professional directly you've literally got no chance so um your, your eighth recommendation Teddy is I'm relying on you 
to give me the relevant details. It's so important that your social workers keep you up to date and tell you the truth, isn't it? So important. As you say, most of the people I would never have met. So if you don't tell me what's going on, then how am I ever going to to know? And we learn about hundreds and hundreds of people every week. Um, And I mean, I've got a fairly good memory, but there's I, I can't be expected to know everything until I've put a face to a name. If I've actually gone and met someone, I'm not going to remember all the details. And I think it can be easy as a social worker to, to fall into the trap of thinking, right, well, I've had these conversations with my manager about that person. They're going to remember that so I can start off from a different point. Please don't ever do that because just check. If, if I remember it, I'll tell you, yeah, I remember that conversation. We said X, Y, and Z. Let's go from there. Um, but otherwise, if you're assuming that I'm remembering that you've told me a minute detail several weeks ago I'm probably not going to remember and that's when it gets into really dangerous decision making if you don't have all that relevant information so um yeah I would I'd rather people retold me things that I might already know than not tell me um and I won't be offended that you think my memory is rubbish because it probably is. Is there a potential risk here in that we all know that a large part of social work is subjective. And it has to be because objective evidence can be difficult to find sometimes. And sometimes one social worker's thresholds, one social worker's experience, one social worker's lived experience and knowledge and training can can differ from another. And it shouldn't, of course. There should be a standardised, you know, rule. That's why we have a common assessment framework and the same legislation and guidance, and we're held to the same standards. But we have to be honest here. There are many, many times that you and I and our listeners would have taken over new cases and thought, what the bloody hell was that previous social worker thinking? And then many times we'll be told by clients, you're better than the last social worker. There could be rare occasions we are told, oh, you're a lot worse than the last social worker. Quite often in case handovers, um, thresholds can suddenly go up or suddenly come down. A new social worker can say, why, we need to go straight to court on this one. This is really serious. I can't believe what the previous worker was thinking. Equally, sometimes we pick up cases in child protection that are in court or about to go into court at pre-proceedings or child protection, and we think it should never have been at this level. We need to bring this down. All that being said, that hopefully sets the context for my next question, Teddy, which is going to be, yes, you are only as good as what your social workers tell you. And yes, as a manager, you are reliant upon the worker to give you relevant details. But what what can be done if the social worker's perception and what they're presenting you is skewed because of their lens or perhaps inexperience? Well, I think part of that is is down to asking the right questions sometimes yes. as the supervisor, um, getting people to go out on joint visits. Um, I often ask my team to buddy up or even if it's not with another member of the team, whether, whether that's a different colleague from a, from a different profession, a, a nurse, a doctor, a, a, an OT or whoever, um, getting as many different sources of evidence is really important and no life-changing decision should be made by one person. It's got to be a multidisciplinary approach. So I think that's what is a a really key safeguard for people. Um, 
and we encourage it as far as possible. That's a good point, that. And, and it's exploring that if somebody says something like, oh, the home conditions are horrific, what do you mean by that? Can you describe it for me? And I think that can really help not taking things at face value. Um, we just talked about this earlier, towing the corporate line. So as a manager, you want your social workers to know that you have to tow the corporate line. How do you do both, Tilly? How do you both be cool? And one of the frontline workers, one of the cool kids, and yet at the same time, tow the corporate line. How do you manage that balance? Well, I tell people that I hate being a corporate cog in the machine and (laughs) (laughs) it does give me the ick. Um, But sometimes we've got to remember who's paying our wages. Yes, of course. And I'm honest with people about decisions and policies that our organisation has. If I like them, I'll say. If I don't like them, I'll probably also say too, and I'm not fine about saying that. Um, But if it is something that I don't like but will agree with then I make that clear I say look oh this is really cheesy I'm really sorry I'm gonna have to make you do this but you know what it's part of our job suck it up and people respect you I think when you're open and honest and human about that no one wants someone that's going to be really corporate and you do this because this is what I say to you um explain your decisions explain your rationale and your workings out and that's all you can do we we have to be accountable to the people that pay our wages you're right there and i think that's the only way you can do it because i mean you know my view my my view is you know i i I do what you know i'm told to do by the council and by the by by you know the legislative legislative framework that guides me i don't dress it up any other way you know i don't go into work and you know well i work for the government but i hate the government i keep my political views very much to myself i I rarely criticize the local authority and if i ever have to criticize one of my employers it really is just pointing out that things could be done better I realised many years ago that you know, if if what I realised, if this makes sense, is that I found myself often complaining about what was my job. Paperwork is my job. Recording is my job. Having to you know comply with statutory guidance on timescales, visits, reports, paperwork. That's my job. So if I didn't have all the things that I found myself mourning about. Well, that's what I'm paid to do. What do what if you, if you strip away that, if you strip away all of the, the paperwork and the processes and the procedures, that's kind of what social work is. Does that make sense, Dilly? Definitely. I mean, social work is difficult. And sometimes when people moan about things being really complex and really hard, I'm like, well, if it wasn't, we wouldn't have a job. We're there to support people when they're at their worst. And that comes with a whole lot of issues and actually we just we do what we can and take quite a hopefully a pragmatic approach about it exactly and your last recommendation the last thing that you want you want people to know what their social work manager wants to know is that you have their back you certainly sound like you've got your employees back stilly how do you how do you show that to people that you you're there for them? 
Oh, I always liken myself to be like a mother hen to my team <laughs> in a nice way, like not like a, yeah. not like a, a an overbearing mum or anything like that. But I'm I I celebrate their successes. I if if I don't agree with something that that um, I don't know senior management have said, or if there's a, a family that that's been particularly um, I don't know abusive towards one of my staff or or anything, I will go in and challenge when I need to challenge or I'll be there to offer a hug or tissues or a cup of tea when they need it and I just it's it's such a human relationship and there's sometimes there's no different between me supervising my staff and when I was a social worker and had a caseload like my my team are my caseload that is my job to make sure that they're all right to support the people out in the communities who they're supporting so it's the same set of skills that you employ as a manager as you do as a frontline social worker we're really not that different at all and anything that we can do to bridge the gap between us and them management and and frontline staff I think that's really important so I always tell people that I've got your back I'm there for you anytime day or night I'm, I'm I'm there and I'm another human being and I try and really value that relationship. I'm going to ask you one more thing. You may agree with me, you may disagree with me, but when I was a manager, um, the service manager, uh, head of service he was, who promoted me and, and who was my, who was above me in sort of the chain of management and who supervised me as a manager, a guy called Ben, good friend of mine, I love him, really, really great guy. We still speak to these days. He's... Um, He's one of the people who I admire most in social work. He's he's an excellent manager, one of the best service managers I've ever had. Um, he said to me, says Vince, being a manager is like being a social worker for your social workers. Would you agree with that, Tilly, based on what you said? A hundred percent agree. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not in a, a patronising way. No, no, but, no, I'm not, but, no, of course But not. being there for them and their well-being and wanting what's best for them and wanting them to be the best that they can be that's exactly what we would want for our supervisees or or the people that are on our caseloads that we're supporting in the communities it's it's the same want and the drive that we have to help other people and it doesn't matter who those people are we're we're there for them yeah, it, and it, and it really it really stuck with me that because I realised that you know pretty soon a lot of the people I was supervising were you know, excellent social workers. In fact, all of them all of them are really good social workers. But some of them were doing things I certainly wasn't capable of doing. A lot of them had skills and experiences that I'd never had. They had life experience. Everyone was really varied, and. I was a bit naive when I first you know, looked at management. I thought, oh, well, I'm probably going to be telling people what to do and how to do their job. No, I wasn't. 90% of my time was sorting out my social workers' problems. Yeah, there's a huge amount of problem solving yeah. involved. And sometimes I liken it to primary school. Um, and I will say that's right, the, the supervisor's face. Um, sometimes the, uh, the, the minor things that go on that can suddenly become big dramas and you do feel like you're talking to to um a bunch of children sometimes and I've told them that I'm like come on guys I am not a teacher <laughs> sort it out um but yeah that that's all part of the fun it keeps the job alive 
So there we go, guys. Those are the things that your social work manager wants you to know. And uh, you've had a, you've had a bit of role play. Tilly hasn't liked it, but I've certainly really enjoyed myself. Oh, every time I hear the word role play, my insides just go all squeamish. I can't deal with it. Um, I didn't go into social work to become an actress. Um, I like real conversations, not fake ones. It, which it, it's funny you say that, Teddy, because you, you dealt with it with aplomb. You, for somebody that's so against role play, you've got you've got a lot of skill in it, boss. You really have. Oh well, thank you, but it's still making me cringe. Move on, move on. Boss, you're all right. It's Vince again. Yeah. <laughs> no, what? I, I, I won't do it again. I won't. I'll stop that. I'm, I'm having too much fun. Oh, I'll, I'll be up in HR. <laughs> I, you I will be. be. My manager will <laughs> take the case to HR for um, having too many laughs at her expense in the workplace. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not going down well. And yeah, you are obtuse. obtuse. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, guys, as always, thank you ever so much for tuning in. Um, we're not going to make it a golfing show. I think um, I'll stave off. I will stave off the midnight midlife crisis for a few more years um, with with role play. You know, Tilly's role play will that'll be something for me to focus on. That'll get me through the hard times ahead. Um, as always, check out the story that we've been talking about today on mysocialworknews.com. Follow us online, which I imagine most of you will follow us online if you listen to the podcast. But if for whatever reason you're not, uh, just Google Social Work News. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast. Do leave a review if you do have the time as well on iTunes. We'll be back next week. Until then, it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.